few months ago now, I put out the call for writers to submit their short stories to the Twilight Zone podcast, and in the 100th episode, I would read them for the rest of the audience to enjoy. Now, initially, the plan was I was going to present them like episodes of the Twilight Zone with an opening and closing narration and some level of production. But I've decided that I'm just going to let the stories speak for themselves because it's quite a lengthy process doing this. And if you've got, say, an hour of story, then you will be editing that for at least double that. And then if you put an effects in and that kind of thing, it makes this quite a big exercise. And after having just completed the Forgotten Twilight Zone episode, which was very lengthy process to put together, I think I thought, you know what? Let's just let the stories speak for themselves because they're very enjoyable stories. So that's what we're going to do. I kept out of the judging myself on this one and I sent each story to five different judges, people who I know, and they awarded points based on their enjoyment of the story. Now, it was quite close there at the top. There were several stories that, given a couple of points either way, could have came out on top. And it's a shame. I would have loved to have read more of them. But like I said, it is quite a lengthy process. So these are the ones that won. Now, the stories themselves didn't have to be, you know, aping the Twilight Zone style. But they needed to have some kind of elements of it. And the first one does. It kind of has that element of the unexplained working on a person and no one else realizes that it's happening to them kind of thing which came up in the twilight zone quite a bit now the second story is something a little different i don't think the writer would mind me saying it's probably not something that would be made into a twilight zone episode but i think the judges and myself were impressed by the kind of uniqueness of it. it it's not something that you come across all the time and it has a kind of twist but not in a traditional sense it's a very natural evolution of the story which uh, which is something that i think we quite enjoyed but the subject matter in that story is a very kind of touchy subject in a way and undoubtedly there are going to be people who for whom the subject matter might have sadly touched their lives in some way. Obviously, no offence is meant in this story. It, it does have a sort of darkly comic edge to it. But what I would say is this, you know, art will sometimes be about uncomfortable subjects. And, and I think this is one of them. But if it is something that has touched your life in some way, then I am sorry to hear that. And perhaps maybe if you start to listen to the story and feel that it's affecting you in a negative way, then then please, by all means, stop listening and come back to us next time when we'll be looking at the Twilight Zone episode two. Also, I've put some links in the show notes for people who are affected by this, but I do think it's a very good story as it is, but, you know, maybe just a little sensitive for some people. So very soon after this, I'm going to be getting started on season three. So I hope you enjoy these stories and I hope you'll join me next time for the Twilight Zone episode two.
Periphery by Mark Alley Stan Montgomery sipped his coffee and looked at the giant bug just beyond his living room window. Made of fiberglass and plywood, the insect was attached to the top of a bright yellow van parked at the end of the driveway. Giant red letters across the side of the van spelled out Bugs Be Gone Pest Control. The van driver had been there for almost two hours, which meant that his task below the house was nearly finished. Stan took a swig of his now lukewarm coffee and walked to the dining room table. Silently, he sat down across from his wife. For nearly seven years now, he and Donna had been married. His wife's hair was long and dark, her eyes chameleon-like, shifting hues from blue to green, depending on what she was wearing. Today her blouse was the colour of the sky, and thus the eyes that gazed at him, coolly and uncomfortably, were glassier blue. He won't find anything, you know that, don't you? Tilting her head slightly, she continued. The house is only a few years old, and we've had it sprayed every year. Silence filled the room as Stan drank the last bitter swallow of the coffee. The exterminator knocked politely on the front door before walking inside. His yellow bugs begone coveralls were dirty, as the man's mud-covered boots trudged over the freshly swept carpet. Donna frowned. Noticing her displeasure, the man blushed and spoke, his voice a little too loud. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Montgomery, your, your home is pretty much pest-free. There were a few cobwebs in the attic, but that's totally normal. The crawl space beneath the house is dry, and there are no signs of termites, cockroaches, or any other bugs down there. Pausing for a moment, he went on. I even checked the drainage ditch. It, it's still wet from recent rain, but there's no standing water, nothing that would produce mosquitoes or anything like that. Stan breathed in deep, then shoved his chair back and stood. Nothing at all? Did you check for mice, rats, that sort of thing? The exterminator nodded. What about, I don't know, snakes, lizards? You're, you're telling me you didn't see anything? The man grinned. No rodents, not even any sign of rodents, other than some ants and spiders here and there. The house is clear. There's nothing to indicate any sort of infestation. Stan's lips set in a tense line. He narrowed his eyes and turned to his wife. Fine then, pay the man Donna, I've got to get back to work. He threw his coffee mug into the sink with a clang and slammed the garage door. As he pulled out of the driveway, Stan saw something move out of the corner of his eye. Pulse racing, he snapped his head around at the giant bug atop the exterminator's van. One of the fake bug's legs swayed loosely in the breeze. Gritting his teeth, Stan jammed his foot on the gas and took off down the street. The bedroom was quiet, save the sound of his wife's deep breathing. Donna slept on his side, facing away from Stan. He lay beneath a thin sheet, air from the ceiling fan above tickling his arms, neck and face. Eyes wide open, he watched the fan blade spin, then glanced at the alarm clock. It was 2.37am. In three and a half hours he had not slept, for even one minute. He adjusted the pillow behind his neck, red digits on the clock, with only colour in the room. Sheets, walls, the dresser, photographs on the wall, 
All of them were only visible in dim shades of grey. Stan moved his eyes around the room, examining everything closely, slowly, carefully. He visually traced the outline of the dresser he and his wife shared. Every drawer, every knob, every part met his gaze. Right to left across the top he scanned his space first. The keys, wallet and coins. Then across to Donna's things. A handkerchief, nail clippers, a small tub of face cream. He considered the cream for a moment. They'd had an argument over it. The cream was an expensive brand from a fancy store. Stan called it a foolish waste. Donna claimed that the cheap stuff made her skin wrinkle. His mind wandered to thoughts of her face, her lips, her neck. Something on the dresser moved. Stan froze. A dark shape was on the handkerchief. Perhaps a shadow? He looked again at the handkerchief, but the darkness moved away. He breathed in steadily, calmly. It appeared again out of the corner of his eye, near to the keys now. It was black, blacker than the shadows in the corners of the room. Too black to just be a shadow. He held his eyes still, focused on the handkerchief. The dark form was visible in the edges of his gaze, creeping from his keys to his wallet. Stan ever so slowly reached out his hand to the lamp on his nightstand. It was difficult to move so carefully, so silently, while his heart pounded in his chest. The temptation to turn and stare straight at the shadowy thing was powerful, but he dared not. Its shape was hard to determine in the darkness. The dark spot was small, oblong and narrow, with hints of movement around the edges. Were these legs? Antennae? His eyes grew tired from both looking and not looking at the shadow. After what seemed like an eternity, Stan's hand reached the lamp, turning it on. Warm light spread across the room. Grey tones were replaced by colours. The golden oak of the dresser, the deep blue pattern of the bedsheets, the creamy white paint on the walls. The clock shifted digits to 2.39. The shadowy shape had disappeared with the darkness. Leaping out of bed, Stan flipped the overhead light switch, then peered behind the dresser. He swiped a hand beneath the heavy piece of furniture. Nothing there. He examined the handkerchief and wallet, even raised them to his nose to check for odours. There were none. Donna stared, opened her eyes and covered them immediately. Stan, what is it? He turned off the overhead lights, then the lamp crawling back into bed. Hey, it was nothing, honey. Go back to sleep. She drowsily complied. Stan waited until her breathing was deep and steady again, then sat at the foot of the bed. Waiting in the dark, he watched. The last time he looked at the clock before he drifted off into fatigued slumber, it was 5.17. Stan took the next afternoon off. Not feeling well, need to use half a sick day, he told his boss. This wasn't a lie, he hadn't had a good night's sleep in over a week. He was exhausted. Nonetheless, Stan didn't head straight from work to the doctor's office, nor to the drugstore or even home. His destination was the giant home improvement store nestled in the middle of his commute. On this, a weekday afternoon, the store was nearly empty, 
an older fellow wearing a red vest swept over like a vulture on a carcass as soon as Stan walked through the door. Stan waved him off bluntly, grabbing a shopping cart. He didn't need help, he knew exactly what he was looking for. Stan's shoes tapped out a steady beat on the concrete floor as he walked to the aisle, labelled Home Pest Control. Dozens of colourful plastic bottles and metal cans stretched from floor to ceiling. They all had strong names like Home Defence Max or Pest Plus or Ant and Termite Killer Pro. Stan read the labels one by one, weighing the pros and cons of each. A red one boasted that it kills bugs outside so they don't come in. Stan put two of those in his cart. A white bottle claimed it was 50% more effective than the leading brand. He got three. A yellow container offered to stop flea infestations for seven months guaranteed. Stan hadn't considered fleas, but he put the bottle in his cart anyway. Midway down the aisle, bottles and cans gave way to boxes containing myriad traps. Stan grabbed all the flypaper they had, plus a carton full of fly strips for good measure. Packages of white plastic strips designed to capture various insects were available. Poison-free glue traps for spiders, liquid ant baits, bedbug strips, roach motels, fly magnets and more. He took four boxes of each type. The last home pest control offerings were devoted to rodent removal. Some of these were humane, others were not. Stan dropped dozens of wooden mousetraps in the cart. Glue traps and something called a killer cat trap, plastic and black as death itself, also looked promising. Running out of room in the cart, Stan dropped as many rodent poison blocks as he could manage. It was a struggle to push the heavy cart to the checkout lane. The old man who had tried to help Amelia was the only cashier. Beneath the man's spindly grey eyebrows and wrinkled spotted brow, his eyes went wide. Well, I'll be, son. You must have some kind of pest problem, he laughed. Stan ignored the man, acting as if he was interested in hand warmers and flashlights in a nearby display. He paid for the selections without a word, and refused the old man's offer of assistance. It took Stan ten minutes to unload the full cart of poisons and prisons into his trunk. When Donna Montgomery pulled into the driveway, Stan was bent over with a red bottle in one hand, connected by a coiling white hose to a spray nozzle in his other hand. He was spraying white foamy liquid around the perimeter of the house. She stepped out of the car and a foul odour hit her nostrils. It smelled like rotting fish and sewer water. Donna stomped over to her husband, breath huffy, heels getting stuck in the grass. What looked like a yellow plastic lantern hung from a gutter drain just above Stan's head. It was full of water, with several flies swirling around inside. She crossed her arms. What on earth, Stan? What's going on? Stan squirted a final dollop of foam on the foundation of the house before turning towards her. Donna's hair was pulled back into a tight bun, her eyes tinted green with the grass and trees, glared hot with anger. Stan pointed to the yellow lantern. That's a trap for flies. The smell attracts them and they come in for the sugar water and can't get out. This stuff, 
he gestured with the bottle and nozzle in his hands, is guaranteed to repel household pests for six months. He continued in a lower voice. I keep seeing them, Donna, out of the corner of my eye. Black things. I can't quite get a good look at them. He looked down at the nozzle, which was pointed at his wife. He dropped it to his side. It's got to be bugs. Roaches or ants, I'd guess. Donna closed her eyes for a moment, then spoke in measured words. Stan, the exterminator said there are no bugs. The house is clear. She considered her husband in the silence that followed. His face was stretched thin, with bags under his eyes. He had aged ten or fifteen years in just a few weeks. Stan mopped the sweat from his brow, bent over, and sprayed more sudsy foam. So the guy said it's clear. That just means he didn't see anything. Doesn't mean there's nothing there. Grunting, he bent behind a shrub and spurted more bug spray. I know what I'm seeing, Donna. Bugs, lots of them. They've got to be here somewhere. Maybe underground, right? He didn't dig up the entire yard looking for nests or colonies, whatever. He rose and faced her again. I just want to be sure, that's all. The bugs, they're, they're driving me nuts. He forced a smile. Donna bit her lip and put her hands on her hips. Fine. Can you stop for a moment and help me with the groceries? It was a command, not a question. Stan nodded, set the bug repellent aside, and washed his hands at the faucet. He had just grabbed an armload of groceries from the car when Donna screamed, Stan! Stan! Dropping the bags, he dashed inside. There stood his wife. Her face screwed up in a grimace of rage. What is all this? She gestured around the room. What's wrong with you? Dozens of gooey fly strips hung from the ceiling. Mouse traps and roach baits lined every inch of the walls. Sheets of sticky paper covered most of the floor. Only narrow pathways to the rest of the house were left bare. The air was heavy and reeked of chemicals. Stan stood dumb as his wife's eyes filled with tears. Donna walked out of the door, got in the car and left, groceries and all. All right then, Mr. Montgomery, let's get started. Lean forward and rest your forehead here, please. The man tapped a foam rubber pad on the end of an off-white boxy piece of machinery sitting on a table between him and Stan. Stan obediently leaned forward, forehead and cheeks resting on the machine. Can you tell me what you see? he said. His voice was pleasant but forced. Stan had insisted on getting an eye exam before the weekend. The only remaining slot was the last appointment on Friday afternoon. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> it's a big white circle with a black X in the middle. Very good. I need you to keep your eyes focused on that X for me, okay? Stan tried to nod, but his head was trapped in the machine. Uh, okay. I'm going to hand you a little device we call a clicker. He pressed a small hard piece of plastic into his hand. He squeezed it, feeling a rubbery button on the top of one side. Can you click the clicker for me? He spoke as if Stan was a small child. Yes, yes, I've got it. He pressed the button with his thumb and it clicked softly. 
That's great. Now I'm going to begin the test. I need you to keep your eyes focused on that black X the whole time. You'll see some lights around the edges of your vision. Some will be to the right, some to the left, in all directions. What I need you to do is click the clicker when you see those lights in the periphery of your vision. Can you do that for me? He sighed loudly. Of course, let's go. He could practically see the irritation on his face as he replied. All right then, Mr. Montgomery, here we go. Stan concentrated intensely on the black X as the test began. His forehead was sweaty against the foam rubber. The optometrist, a balding man with round, gold-rimmed glasses, turned a few knobs. Stan felt lenses flipping by his eyes, close enough to touch his lashes. The doctor pulled the mask-like machine away from Stan's face, then rolled over to the desk on the far wall. That will do then, Mr. Montgomery. Give me just a moment here. Lean back and relax, if you like. Relax. The word made Stan think back to the hours spent wide awake in the bedroom the past few weeks. As his gaze jumped from the pastel pattern of the wallpaper to the fancy lettering of the diploma hanging on the wall, Stan tried to remember the last time he'd been relaxed enough to rest. The optometrist scribbled on a pad of paper before ripping it off and turning back to Stan. Your eyes look very good, Mr. Montgomery. There's some slight presbyopia, but that's normal for a man of your age. I've written you a prescription, but you're probably just as well off getting a pair of reading glasses off the rack. He smiled at Stan, pleased with his diagnosis. Stan's stomach clenched. You mean there's nothing wrong with my eyes? The optometrist tilted his head slightly. Uh, no, sir, just standard wear and tear. Stan's lips pressed together tight. That can't be right. I, I know there's a problem. It's just not simple age. It's serious damage, glaucoma or a tumour or something. He raised a hand to his forehead, rubbing his eyebrows. I know something is wrong. Something changed behind the optometrist's eyes. What, uh, what makes you think something is wrong with your vision, Mr. Montgomery? Stan's cheeks flushed. Sometimes, sometimes I see things out of the corner of my eye. Black things scuttling around. When I look directly at them, they disappear. The look on the doctor's face made anger swell inside Stan's chest. Listen, I know what it sounds like, but I'm not, I'm not crazy if that's what you're thinking. The optometrist raised his hands as if he were afraid Stan would strike him. I didn't say any such thing, sir. Can you tell me more about these, uh, these things you see? Stan raised his voice. No, I've never had a good look at them. It's like bugs crawling around, on the floor, the corner of the room, just barely in my sight. Stan looked up at the ceiling, exhaling. You know how you see things when you close your eyes, wormy swirls and that sort of twitching? The doctor nodded. You're talking about phosphenes. It's a well-known phenomenon, probably caused by pressure on the retina. That's totally normal, Mr. Montgomery. Stan gritted his teeth. Is it normal to see these things when my eyes are open, doctor? The man cast his eyes down, shook his head slightly, and handed Stan the prescription. The sky was sunset purple as Stan stepped into his home, locking the door behind him. He tossed a sack of fast food onto the couch. 
No time for a meal now. He had to make his rounds. Stepping carefully around the flypaper squares tiling the floor, Stan began his inspection in the kitchen. The countertops were covered in flour. He leaned down, carefully scrutinising the pounded flat flour. No footprints. No signs of vermin. The mousetraps were empty, each tiny smear of peanut butter undisturbed. Moving to the dining room, Stan inventoried the fly strips hanging from the ceiling. Before his eye appointment, he'd counted every single fly on each strip, less than five houseflies trapped in the sticky goop of most strips. The one over the trash can, though, had far more. At last count, 23 different flies dotted its orangey-brown length. He peered closely at the strip, careful not to touch it himself, counting. Twenty-four flies now. His mind began to race. Was this it? Twenty-four flies? Could this be the infestation? He nearly convinced himself it could be true before a whiff of the trash can reached his nostrils. Paper cups, styrofoam containers, and a banana peel were overflowing, spilling out of the lid. Stan shoved the top down, and the fly buzzed by his face. He froze. Watching the fly circle the strip, Stan cursed under his breath when it flew off. He checked and rechecked every trap, every fly strip, every sticky, deadly thing laid out through the home he used to share with his wife. He counted 78 flies and two small spiders. In the master bedroom, one mousetrap had been sprung, but now it was empty, the bait undisturbed. Stan thought perhaps the thing was still stuck in the trap, but invisible in the light. He turned the bathroom light out, shut the door, and waited in the dark for half an hour. The trap remained empty. Frustrated, Stan stomped back into the living room, inadvertently stepping on a piece of flypaper. He flopped down on the couch, ripped half of the sticky paper from his shoe, and tossed it aside. Reaching into the bag of food, now cold, he withdrew a box of stale fries. The unwrapped burger was limp and soggy. Stan ate without tasting while flipping channels on the television, talking heads on the news, two people dancing, a basketball game. Nothing interested him at all. His mind wandered to things again. He swallowed the last cold fry and walked to the linen closet in the hall. There were no linens inside when he opened the door. The shelves were stuffed top to bottom with pesticides and traps. He reached for a nearby can. Ghost Roach Control Max, the label screamed in neon green letters. He shut the closet door and walked back to the couch, setting the can nearby, before pressing buttons on the remote again, almost at random. He pictured himself emptying the can on a huge nest of bugs, watching them scurry away, legs convulsing, flopping back and forth, dying. Stan flipped the channel again, the screen went to a movie, black and white. Soldiers stood in a cave, unloading machine guns. He paused to watch. A high-pitched buzz blended with the soldiers' gunfire. One of them screamed. A huge, hairy leg swept across the screen. A giant ant lurched forward. Stan threw the remote control at the television set. The screen cracked and went dark. Leaning forward, his pulse racing, 
he cupped his face in his shaking hands. Stan lay on his side in the dark, something hard and round pressing into his ribs. The giant ant squeezed, extracting the life from him. Cold antennae brushed his face as the ant pulled him close. Stan struggled as the monstrous insect cracked his ribs. He sat upright in bed, body covered in sweat, panicked. Stan looked around, but there was no giant ant, no bugs at all. A can of bug spray lay on top of the crumbled sheets next to him. Stan rubbed the back of his sticky neck. He must have rolled over on top of the can after he fell asleep. He closed his eyes, slowed his breathing, and waited for his pulse to return to normal. The clock read 3.37 when he was calm enough to open his eyes again. How long had he been asleep? He went over the events of the evening in his mind. After busting the television set, Stan had made his rounds again. Two more flies were stuck to the strip over the trash can. A mosquito was caught on a piece of flypaper in the bathroom. After this, he had moved all the furniture away from the walls through the entire house save his bedroom. Then he had sprayed four different kinds of chemicals on the baseboards. The smell nearly overwhelmed Stan, but he managed to finish after tying a wet rag over his mouth and nose. After his tasks were finished, his head ached. Shutting himself in the bedroom, he turned on the fan, waiting on the end of the bed for the smell to clear out. He must have nodded off. Now though, he was up, wide awake, and it was time to get back to work. He opened the door, inhaling deep to check the smell. The air was thick and pungent, but his head stayed clear. Stan walked across the hallway through the living room and into the dining room, then opened the door leading to the garage. In the dim light of two naked bulbs, Stan made his preparations. He gathered his work gloves, knee pads, and a head-mounted flashlight. Hoisting a backpack on backwards with the pack towards his front, he filled it with squat, heavy, purple cans labelled Bugshot Fogger. Adjusting the straps, Stan walked to the plywood board in the garage floor that gave access to the crawl space. He flipped his flashlight on, yanked the board aside, and crept down into the blackness under the house. Stan smiled. I knew it, he said, laughing out loud. There were cobwebs everywhere. Dozens of thick strands hung from the wooden girders. Only a few cobwebs in the attic, the exterminator had said. It was a lie. Cobwebs were here, below the house as well. This was it. This was the source. The bugs were down here. Now Stan would kill them all. He'd get his home, his wife, his life back. His hands shook with excitement as he withdrew a can of fogger from the backpack. There was a popping sound as Stan pressed a button on the top of the can. Foul-smelling white smoke poured out of it. He tossed it towards a far corner, then reached into the backpack for the next can. Four cans later, thick smoke rolled all over the gravel floor. Stan coughed, his eyes watering. He swore quietly, upset that he'd forgotten the rag to cover his face. No matter. He could fight through it. All that mattered was that every last one of the bugs died. He threw two more cans, eyes streaming with tears, before his stomach revolted. Stan threw up all over himself. 
The smell made the heavy, caustic air in the crawl space even worse. One more can, he thought, coughing up the last of the sick in his mouth. One more can. His arms were weak now. It took both hands to push the button on the last can. Too feeble to throw it. He only managed to roll the can a few feet. The smoking end pointed right back at him. The headache returned now worse than ever. No matter, he did it, he won the war. Now it was time to leave. His shoulders quivered like jelly, he could barely keep up on his knees. Stan slowly turned back to the square of light shining down from the garage. Crawling forward, he stopped, staggered, face falling in the gravel. He lifted his heavy head up. You can do this, he thought to himself, you beat them. The light mounted on his forehead sputtered, then went dim. Hairs raised on Stan's neck. It occurred to him how dark it was under the house. Maybe entering the crawl space in the middle of the night had not been a good idea. He coughed, nearly puking again, and crawled forward a few painful feet. Focus on the light, just a few more yards now, crawl to the light. Smoke rolled over Stan like a blanket. He couldn't see it now, in the dark, but he could smell it. The acrid burn seared his nostrils. Only a bit more now, look, look at the light. Something tickled Stan's ear, then ran through his hair. He lifted an arm to swat at it. Something squirmed from his elbow up his arm, then inside his shirt. He tried to ignore the things, focus on the light, keep moving to the light. Tickles in his socks now, crawling caresses up his pant legs. Not just one or two, but dozens by the feel of it. Their feet pinched his back, skittering up and down his spine, like trapeze artists. Focus on the light. He got sick again, prickling legs dancing around his mouth, slithered around the edges of his nostrils. He was too weak to brush them aside. Stan was nearly to the light now. He could see his workbench framed by the opening ahead. Hundreds of tiny things swarmed over his skin, tentatively like the touch of a lover. The bites and the stings began, slow at first, then quicker, sharper, more painful. Stan cried out as torturous pinwheels of agony erupted all over his body. He managed one last look at the light. Hundreds of tiny black bodies, legs twitching and antennas squirming, poured over the edge of the crawl space door. The light faded, leaving only blackness. Stan squeezed his eyes shut and waited for the end. On the back of his eyelids, a million bugs crawled. He tried to scream, but there were too many things in his throat. Two police officers walked into the garage. Where did she say she found him? One asked. In the crawl space, I think, the other said. Wife said he had a metal breakdown or something. Thought there were bugs everywhere. She looked at the cans of bug spray on the workbench. The first officer whistled. Yep, there's enough pesticide here to kill off every bug in town, he said. I'd say you lost it for sure. Drugs, maybe? The female officer walked over to the crawl space entrance. The plywood board was still set aside. 
No drug paraphernalia. You saw all the bug stuff in the house, right? Guy was nuts for sure. She stepped down into the crawl space before calling to her partner. I see him. Shine your light down here. The man walked over, crouched over the hole and leaned in, casting his flashlight into the dark. Look at those cans. What are they, foggers? You think he came down and set these all off at once? He flicked the light around. I count ten cans. Can you believe it? Yeah, I believe it. Poor guy should have read the labels closer. That stuff is bad for humans too. She moved closer to the still form. So what do you think? What's the likely cause of death? The woman coughed. Looks like he threw up all over himself. The lab guys will verify it, but it has to be poisoning, right? There's not a mark on him. Her partner paused for a moment, flashing his light at the far wall. What is it? she said. Uh, I just saw something out of the corner of my eye, that's all. Probably nothing. Let's call it in and get out of here. The Note Writer by David H. Jones I am a professional suicide note writer, which is to say I provide a service fast, efficient and discreet for others, rather than writing for myself. I am not a one-note man. If you are thinking of killing yourself, then I am at your service. Stuck for words? Let me provide them. Want to strike back at someone? I have a barb or two up my sleeve. Want to let the world know how you feel? Difficult. But if you are willing to pay for my time, then I think you'll be happy with the results. Want to explain to your family why you are doing what you're doing? Easy. Except it's not. I started out writing greetings cards, congratulations on your divorce, etc. So suicide note writing was a natural next step and an additional source of income during those lean times of the wordless fad, when people bought blank cards and experimented with their own words. That didn't last, not many people have enough words in them, but my taste for suicide notes did. There's a craft in the writing of the note, as I non-pretentiously think of it, which other forms of writing fail to match. The significance of the last communication from one soul to the uncaring multitude, or to the one person who might understand. I love unearthing the jewel of humanity prior to writing. It really is a process involving technique, creativity and love. My first note was accidental. A friend, entertaining the idea of suicide, asked me to help him set his thoughts in order so that he could leave behind a critique of the world sufficiently explosive to change it by his death. 
Why not just write the note and send it to the editor of your local newspaper, I said, consumed with finding another way to say get well soon. Because I'm going to kill myself, he said. It's a statement. Words on paper, I replied. That's a statement. You don't understand me. So I sat with him and helped him to sort his thoughts out, thinking it a useful exercise for me to stretch myself beyond words suitable for a supermarket shelf next to the dog food. It was also interesting to find that, no, I didn't know him. Didn't know him at all. It was good of me, I thought, an act of altruism, supporting my friend in his endeavour. I had to think of it this way as I was not being paid. I was pleased with my work, and when I went to deliver the final draft to him, I knew he would be pleased too. Except he had gone belly up by his own hand, which was both upsetting and a little inconsiderate. I would have liked his opinion on the polished words, which I felt were as much mine as his. Perhaps it was my fault. I was on the tenth draft before I was satisfied enough to show him. If I had called round with an earlier draft, he might not have been so impatient to die. By the date of the vomit-flecked newspaper by his cheek, he had been dead for several days, so the only draft I could have shown would have been the eighth, which would have been no use, as the eighth draft was, if anything, weaker than the seventh. Instead of waiting for me, he had left behind a scrawled note which simply said, The world is too big, too much of everything for me. It didn't make much sense as statements go. Mine would have been much better, with references to country and western music, the Pope, and a stray cat I used to feed occasionally. Disparate references, yes, but brought together in a narrative which made each a poignant reflection of my friend's life and death. True, my friend never liked the cat and would chastise me for feeding it, but I think he would have liked how it fitted into a narrative where his death mattered to more than one person. So I left my final draft at the scene before calling the police. The officers who talked to me later weren't much fun when they realised that the note had not been written by my friend, but by me in the role of ghostwriter. The coroner wasn't amused either, though he did remark on the quality of the work, which was a plus. Now friendless, and with a dip in need for a Twenty-third thousandth way to say I love you, I had the idea for note-writing. After all, I had a knack for writing the things, but I had also learned to get to the heart of what people wanted to say. That was the key to the whole project. The problem is that most people thinking of killing themselves are desperate people, not given to seeking out someone such as myself. I had to be visible, but not vulgar. So I began by printing off some business cards and setting out for the towns dotted around my home. My first professional job came through rejection, funnily enough. I was in a small, unfamiliar town which looked like the kind of place one might wish to leave one way or the other. There was only one newsagent, so I decided to place a card in the window. Unfortunately, the owner turned out to be surprisingly sensitive for a man surrounded by tabloid newspapers all day, and gave me several variations on the word no. His wife, though, followed me to the door and took my note from me. 
not to place it in the window, but to call me a few days later. Hurrah! My method of working has not changed since her, the woman whose suicide note I wrote. She set the pattern for my success, with her desire to die. For that I am grateful. How does it work? Well, the first thing you should know is my focus is on personal communication. It has to be. No internet for me. I only want to meet people in person, face to face, as I need to watch them as they speak, as they weigh their words, as they grapple for the right word and come up short. I need to see it in their eyes, that struggle for meaning. At first, I simply listen. I do not interject. I do not offer the untruth of, I know just what you mean, for I seek the truth which comes from listening. I lose myself, becoming a part of them, only speaking when I feel the words are apt, when I am ready to play their feelings back to them, in words which capture the essence of what they were trying and failing to say. I keep doing this until I have it right, until the note exists clean and fresh, a perfect reflection showing them either as they are or how they wish to be seen. That is the art of what I do. It is all I do. I do not facilitate death. I am only the note writer. It is sad that only a relatively small number of people leave a suicide note. How to reach that untapped market is a problem, which I have yet to address to my satisfaction. Fortunately, I make the most of the market that exists. Even that I place at the feet of the newsagent's wife. I can still recall our first meeting at my flat. For some reason I had decided to set the mood by dimming the lights and playing sombre music. It seemed appropriate conducive to the situation, until she turned up and seemed unsure if someone had died or if I was going to seduce her. Whatever it was, I turned the lights up and the music off, and we talked about books. In the newsagent there was a paperback section, somewhere toward the back of the shop. It was her creation, a small amount of floor space taken up by a few shelves lined with books. Her husband had wanted the space for cheesy puffs, such as celebrity magazines, but she would not let him. This was her domain, her slice of the business. Except, no one bought the books. So she read them herself, carefully, slowly, to preserve each book so that she could place it back on the shelf as if unread, untouched. How like myself, she smiled at me. Anyway, no one buys the books. That was when I realised I had to save her, this lover of words, this woman who needed to be read, this hopeful soul who had foundered. So I worked with her to find the words she lacked, the explanation she wished to offer, without any expectation that anyone would care. At heart, she wanted forgiveness. At the end of our final meeting, when she had paid the last instalment and was about to leave with the note clutched to her breast, both shield and talisman, she paused 
and I thought she did not want to leave what she had found with me. But she smiled and said, I won't see you again. Maybe I'll call in and buy a book. I'd like that. I've read them all, you know. And I knew she wasn't going to kill herself. Not despite the words she now held, but because of them. And I was glad. That set the pattern. Though since that time I also refer my clients to other sources of help. Sometimes they even pay me and leave without taking their note. I am pleased enough at this sign that they shall live beyond the night. You think me unprofessional? Too caring? Not at all. In seeking to take their money and keep them alive, I hope for the holy grail of suicide note writing, for my clients to stay alive long enough to outlive the usefulness, the appropriateness of the note, to need another. Repeat business is good business, and I offer a discount. That's all it is, good business. In saving her, my first client, I was preserving her custom for a later date. But I never heard from her again, and I have never returned to that newsagent to see if she is still there, if the books are still there. No good would come of it. I like to think that they are, and that is enough.